Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Socrates famously declared, the unexamined life is not worth living. Have no fear. Today, we will examine a wide range of the issues in the bioethical life of physicians. Has the medical profession failed to properly execute on vaccinating the public? Why do disparities in healthcare still exist in the 21st century? How much dishonesty is to be found in the exam room? We will explore these questions and more with a leading bioethicist next on Sound Practice. My guest today is Matthew Winnia. Matthew Winnia is a physician trained in infectious disease and public health. Dr. Winnie is a nationally known bioethicist. He has authored over 160 articles. He has appeared on CNN, ABC News, MSNBC, and National Public Radio. Dr. Winnie currently serves as the director of the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. Dr. Winnie, welcome to Sound Practice. Thank you for having me. It is my absolute pleasure. Dr. Winnie, you've, you've spoken of a pandemic playbook that we had available but did not properly use when COVID-19 appeared uh, early last year. Can you tell me what's in the playbook? Oh, that's such a, a great and uh, expansive question. Um, that, you know, there is a uh, an enormous body of research, not as enormous as it probably ought to be, I'll acknowledge that, um, but there's a good deal of research on how to respond to a pandemic, some of which is as recent as 2009 when we we did experience a pandemic, the H1N1 pandemic, um, in which 60 million Americans caught um, a novel influenza virus. Uh, we got very lucky in 2009 that only about 12,000 people died. So it was a novel virus. Everyone was uh, susceptible. So huge numbers of people were infected, but it also turned out to be a rather mild virus. And so for most people who caught influenza in 2009, it was not a big deal. But you can imagine, you know, in in early 2009, when, when we started seeing reports of this, both from the U.S. and from elsewhere around the world, uh, we thought when the new flu season, when the flu season came around in, you know, September, October of 2009, that we were about to be just creamed. Um, we thought the healthcare system was about to be swamped. Um, we thought that we were going to see situations where we had many people who needed, um, you know, artificial ventilation, and we would not have nearly enough ventilators to go around. Um, and so that really prompted a lot of preparatory um, activity. And then after 2009, as this played out, and it turned out we didn't need, you know, many of those plans, we sort of filed those plans away for next time, knowing that there will be a, a next time. Um, you know, we, we are not gonna be done with pandemic uh, disease because um, viruses continue to mutate and evolve. And at some point you see either a novel influenza virus to which no one has any immunity, or you see a novel coronavirus to which no one has any uh, pre, you know, pre-existing immunity. And when that happens, 
you have the potential for very large numbers of infections all at once um, with you know this exponential growth of infections. And we knew in advance because of the planning, um, you know, not only for H1N1, but for prior pandemics, I should say, it didn't start in 2009. Um, it, you know, we've, we've been having pandemics forever. Um, so, so we have, you know, masking uh, ideas. We had uh, what needs to be in the stockpile um, in terms of, you know, spare resources. Uh, we have plans for how to allocate ventilators in the event that we really do get swamped. And we've got, you know, 10 people who all need a ventilator, but there's only two or three ventilators available. How do you decide who gets that ventilator? All of those things had been thought through and planned out. Um, and, you know, to some extent, those were used um, sporadically here and there in different states, in different ways. Um, I think where we really fell down in terms of, you know, not using the pandemic playbook was at the federal level um, where, you know, it was basically, you know, not even taken off the shelf um, because there was a, a sort of ideological sense that states ought to be handling this. Uh, with the exception, by the way, the notable exception of a, a you know, tremendous effort to create a vaccine. Um, and that was a federal effort. It was recognized right off the bat that that would need to be a federal effort with enormous resources put into it. Um, and that did happen and, you know, and really paid off um, in an amazing way with multiple uh, highly effective vaccines coming online within a year. That I, I don't think we should underplay the miracle of that. Absolutely not. Um, a true, and I think miracle is the, the right, right term for it. Uh, but as you as you listed off and you, you ticked off these uh, things that are, are in the in the playbook or, or what resources we should have, have, have thought about actions we should have uh, taken it, it really does seem to to beg the next question of why was this hard-earned knowledge not not applied yeah and I, th I think you know there will be, uh, many PhD dissertations written about this, um, I think, I predict in the next 50 years, uh, dissecting, and, and there are already books being written about it. Uh, I think we're seeing, you know, multiple books <laughs> already looking at sort of what were the factors um, that caused uh, folks in the federal government not to uh, respond in the way that we sort of assumed um, the federal government would respond in the event of a disaster of this magnitude, a catastrophic, you know, global pandemic. Um, and, I, you know, so I think this is a first cut at history now. Um, and I think the, the first cut at history uh, is bound to be wrong in, in some respects, almost certainly oversimplified. Um, but my sense is, um, that there was a sort of ideological and a, and a political uh, agenda at play here, which uh, was that the federal government should step aside as much as possible and let states manage this. Um, and th to some extent, by the way, that is baked into our disaster response frameworks. Uh, most disasters, you know, all disasters are local is kind of a, a truism in disaster response. And you know, here we were dealing with a catastrophic, not only nationwide, but global disaster occurring everywhere all at once. 
And the idea that that kind that that scale of disaster could be managed at the lo- mostly at the local level um, is just flawed thinking. But it is but it is thinking that you know is resonant in America, right? In America, we have states' rights. We have the idea of the states as laboratories. We have the notion that you know we want to devolve power as far down towards the individual as possible. And all of those things serve us very well in most circumstances, but in a global pandemic, they served us very poorly. Um, really kind of an antebellum view of, of public health. So let's, um, let's talk about earlier times. I'm a resident of Terre Haute, Indiana, and I can tell you that in the early 1850s, there were several cases of smallpox here in, in Terre Haute, and citizens were required to get vaccinated, inoculated. No options, right? When did the attitude uh, towards public health skew libertarian? Well, I think so. First off, I, I think I would say there were uh, there was a skew libertarian in the 1800s and early 1900s as well. That's why we end up seeing a Supreme Court case, uh, not out of Terre Haute, but out of Boston uh, around smallpox vaccination in the early part of the 1900s, uh, 1906, I believe, is the Jacobson case. So this you know famous case of uh, a mandatory vaccination for smallpox or inoculation at that time for smallpox. Um, and there was a person who said, I don't want to do it and I don't want to pay the fine. Um, so, And the Supreme Court said, well, you will either get the vaccine or you will pay the fine. The state is authorized um, to create mandates like this and to impose some kind of a penalty for the mandate. I think the um, the, the fact that we've always had a segment of the population um, in the U.S. that, you know, says you you're not the boss of me. Uh, you can't tell me what to do. Um, and in particular, they'll say you can't inject me with something against my will. Um, that has, uh, you know, a lot of, as I said, resonance to the American psyche. Um, and I think it, it bears noting that um, vaccination mandates, including I assume the one in Terre Haute, certainly the one in Boston, were not a mandate in the sense of we're gonna you know, drag you from your home kicking and screaming and inoculate you whether you want it or not. They're mandates that are enforced through a fine or through, you know, as we're talking about today, um, you, know, you may see an airline say, look, you, or a cruise ship, say you can't take a cruise on our cruise ship unless you're willing to undergo the following, you know, vaccination or testing regimen. But that's not a mandate in the sense of, you know, we're going to drag you kicking and screaming and inoculate you against your will. I don't think we're going to see that in the U.S. ever. Um, But I think we will see multiple mandates where people say, look, you can work somewhere else then, Uh, but you can't work in this hospital if you don't have your vaccine. Um, and that's a matter of public health, and it's a and it's a matter of you know not uh, of just all sort of following the same rules so that we don't end up infecting each other. Um, I I think of this as you know comparable to uh, a seatbelt law. You know, uh, yes, seatbelt laws. By the way, stop signs also are a constraint on your individual liberty. 
Sure. Right. <laughs> so we do lots of things in public life that constrain our individual liberty in order to not end up hurting each other. Um, and so, you know, having speed limits, having stop signs, having seatbelt laws, these are all the ways in which we constrain individual liberty in order to protect the larger community from someone who may end up doing something dangerous, whether they intend to or not. Um, and vaccination was basically put into that same bucket in 1906 by the Supreme Court, and it has been upheld repeatedly, including very recently in the Houston Methodist decision, which allows for vaccination mandates in hospitals. Um, and I expect it will continue to be upheld because it's sort of a core thing that a civilized society does in fact constrain individual liberty to some extent in order to keep everyone safe. And those, you know, where are the limits is where is where the really interesting conversations arise uh, because you can obviously overstep this. What we have in the history of mankind seen um, states that overstepped uh, and, and went way too far in the direction of, you know, constraining individual liberties in, in pursuit of uh, public good or public well-being, um, you know, the, the infamous case, you know, most, most infamous being the Nazis who, you know, felt like individuals had zero um, individual rights. It was all about the Volk. It was all about the, the larger community. And so, you know, we have that historical legacy that prevents us, I think, from going too far down that path. Um, but it doesn't mean, you know, we can't do anything that constrains individuals in order to protect the community. Sure. So here's something that, that bothers me. Is it, is it too late? Has the opportunity to address concerns and vaccine hesitancy passed? I fear that some of our fellow citizens have really entrenched on their anti-vax position. Tell me I'm wrong. Um. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think you are you are right in 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 one re regard, which is um, there is a fair you know portion of the population, um, a, a relatively small portion, but there are people for whom anti-vaccination belief systems have become a part of who they are, right? It's a it's a piece of their personal integrity, and to the extent that someone holds a belief. Uh, whether it's a religious belief, a political belief, uh, 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 a scientific belief. Um, and I'm, I'm putting scare quotes, although I just realized this is a podcast. People can't see my hands. <laughs> I, I um, can verify. Those were scare quotes. Those were scare quotes. <laughs> um, scientific, right? Uh, belief. But to the extent a belief becomes a part of who you are, um, it becomes very challenging um, to change that belief, even when you uh, see data to suggest that the belief is wrong. Um, the way people change beliefs that are that entrenched is there, there has to be a storyline that is coherent about how you moved from what you believe today to what you believe, you know, or what, what you believe now to what you will believe in the future, right? So people don't just change because of data. They need a story. Um, about how they transformed their belief. Um, so it's hard, but it is not impossible. There are definitely people who have moved from one set of beliefs to a different set of beliefs over time. 
And hopefully the second set of beliefs is more, you know, fact-based, more in line with the reality of the situation. But you, you're not going to get people to move from a current belief to a future belief by just telling them the current belief is wrong, by just giving them data and charts and figures and graphs. Um, you, you need to you need to tell you need to help them develop the story for how they move from one belief to the other belief. Um, I will I will say by the way I, I mentioned this is a pretty small segment of the population. Um, it's it's a minority of the people who haven't gotten vaccinated so far. So most of the people, at least according to the survey data we have on this, most of the people who haven't gotten vaccinated so far are not hardcore, this is who I am, I will never buy your you know, vaccine, I think there's a microchip in it, you know, those kind of conspiracy theories. They're, they exist, but they're not the majority. Um, most of the people who haven't gotten vaccinated so far are of the, uh, I'm gonna wait and see, or I just don't see why it's a value to me. I'm glad my grandma got vaccinated, but why should I get vaccinated? Look at the data on survival rates for people my age. Most people my age, the vast majority survive. So why should I take the risk of an unknown vaccine when uh, you know I perceive my personal risk as being extremely low? Um, and I think you know for folks like that, they're gonna need to talk to someone else who believed that as well and then changed their mind because they realized, you know what, I'm destined to get this. Um, everyone is gonna get this at the rate things are going right now. So my, 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 you know, my choice is not between getting vaccinated and you know, taking my chances. My choice is between getting vaccinated or getting COVID because everyone is gonna get COVID eventually. So which would I rather? Would I rather get the vaccine, which, you know, granted it's a new vaccine and there are people who get side effects from it. Those are, that's real, They're, those are real things. But COVID's a real thing too. And a certain proportion of people, you know, who get vaccinated um, end up having fever for a couple of days and have to take a day off of work and that's no fun. But a certain proportion, you know, a similar proportion of people who get COVID are sick for two weeks and are out of work for two or three weeks. And a, and a small portion of them are still feeling terrible three months later, right? So if your choice is not between vaccination and take my chances, your choice, the way things are going right now, the choice is get vaccinated or get COVID. Which of those would you rather? And I think you know people will start to see that. And this, by the way, is why we are seeing an uptick in vaccination right now because of the spread of the Delta variant and the fact that people are seeing uh, you know their friends and neighbors get sick and some of them are dying. Well, that that's at least a little bit more hopeful than where I think <laughs> I start. I started my question, so let's let's transition from from coronavirus, COVID nineteen. Dr. Anna Puholtz McKee uh, appeared on Sound Practice, and Dr. McKee is the chief medical officer for the Joint Commission. And she spoke of disparities in healthcare as a patient safety issue. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that's correct? And if so, what are the implications to physicians if it is correct? 
So, uh, so it's interesting. I, I haven't heard that episode, so I'm not sure how she was thinking, but there are two ways to, to think about disparities and patient safety. Um, one is that we actually have uh, data going back at least 15 years, but a, but a very recent study that reconfirmed this. Uh, I believe it was the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation put out a study just in the last few months looking at disparities in patient safety events by race and ethnicity. And it turns out, um, not surprisingly, I guess, but it turns out that racial ethnic minority communities in the US tend to experience more patient safety events, more medical errors, more adverse outcomes as a result of you know, inappropriate care um, than white patients do. Um, much of that, is, but not all of it, um, is driven by the fact that minority communities tend to receive care in lower quality hospitals and at lower quality clinics. So there's some uh, of that that is attributable to the differences in quality delivered by different hospitals and clinics. Um, that, of course, by the way, does not solve the problem. It just explains where things are. But I think you do need to take a step back from that and say, well, why is it that minority patients end up being seen more often in lower quality hospitals that have more errors, right? That's not an accident. The, the, the segregation within our healthcare system, like the segregation within our school systems, uh, did not arise by chance. It was designed um, and so the ongoing segregation and the ongoing lower quality services that are provided to minority communities um, is a function of system. This is what people talk about when they say systemic racism. It's not about individual doctors treating patients differently by the color of their skin. It's about you know, structures in society that lead minority communities to receive lower quality services because they go to lower quality um, service providers and those lower quality service providers are, are under-resourced and so on. Um, so that's one way to think about patient safety and disparities um, is that there are disparities in patient safety. Um, the other way to think about it is to say every disparity that we see Every healthcare disparity, uh, so the fact that um, minorities are two or three times more likely um, to, to catch and then to die from COVID or to end up hospitalized from COVID, that is a patient safety issue. And um, I've actually been pushing this view for uh, about 12 or 15 years now um, that, uh, that we should look at racial disparities in health outcomes and racial disparities in, um, in, uh, in care delivery as a medical error. And it, it's just a way to frame that conversation. It's a way to think about it. Like when, when we see, because we, we've spent a long time in healthcare um, coming around to the view that um, when an error occurs in a hospital, um, it's almost never the result of a single person making a terrible decision, you know, with no external forces uh, at play. 
when we do root cause analysis of medical errors, uh, on average, there are seven or eight places where that error could have been caught and mitigated so that it wouldn't have harmed a patient. So we've um, you know, talked for a generation now about just culture and the need to be able to speak openly and to learn from medical errors because they're not about bad doctors, they're about bad systems. And how do we improve the systems of care to avoid errors? And I think we need to apply that same lens to the racial disparities uh, that we see in healthcare. They're not about bad doctors. It's about a bad system that leads to these disparate outcomes uh, by race and ethnicity and by socioeconomic status and by rural urban status, right? There are disparities in a lot of ways, not just racial disparities. Why is it that we see rural communities having worse health outcomes than urban communities and so on? So I, I think if you, if you start thinking about quality uh, of care by applying the patient safety lens, what you, what you get from that is a move away from blame and shame and you know, calling out individual doctors for not doing as good as they could, which by the way, we shouldn't ignore that. There are, there, there are doctors who don't do as well as they should and do need remediation and so on. So I'm not setting that, I'm not ignoring that, but I would say that's not the majority of the reason why we see health disparities by race and ethnicity. It's not individual doctors saying, I'm gonna treat this black patient worse because I don't like black people. That, that is pretty rare. Um, it happens, but it's relatively rare compared to the systemic factors that lead you to say, well, I'm gonna treat the black patient the same while they're in my clinic, but then they're gonna go home to an environment that doesn't allow them to follow through on the prescription that I just gave them. And that's gonna lead to a worse health outcome. And that's, that's a systemic factor, and, and we need to approach that on a systems level, not just on an individual level. That was a long answer to oh, but it was an interesting question. Answer. I apologize. No, no, it was an interesting answer. Thank you. You've done some, some research or uh, studies in the past about physicians uh, being untruthful or lying to, to patients. And I was very hmm. interested in that. Can you tell me a little bit about that research? Yeah, boy, you're really taking me back. Um, this is when I was at the Institute for Ethics at the American Medical Association. And um, one of the things that we were interested in was uh, physicians who might be misleading insurance companies in order to get things covered that they thought the patient needed, but that the insurance company might not cover. And were doctors, um, you know, using different codes than might've been completely accurate, that kind of thing, in order to get uh, drugs covered, testing covered, et cetera. Um, and so we did uh, a national survey looking at that issue. And one of the things that came up in the context of looking at misleading insurance companies was that there were also doctors who said, yeah, and you know what? If I don't think something is going to be covered and there's not a way for me to get it covered, Sometimes I just won't mention it to patients. Sometimes I'll just ignore it because, and the rationale was something like, why should I bring something up as an option if it's not really an option for this patient? Because I know that, patient. 
Yeah, as though you're taunting them with, you know, well, in an ideal world, I'd like to get you this, but you, you're no way you're going to be able to afford this, and the insurance company is not going to cover it. So I'm not. I'm just not going to bring it up with you. And um, and to some extent, that is misleading the patient by omission, right? Sure. So it's not exactly a lie, um, but it is a lie by omission, by not bringing something up. And we were disturbed by that finding. Um, we thought that that was con of concern. Again, not because I think a, an individual doctor is necessarily a bad person for making that. That's a very difficult choice to make, to say, uh, you know, I've got this test that I would like to be able to do, but the insurance company will never cover it. I'm just not going to mention it. Um, I think that's a tough decision to make because of that issue you just mentioned. Uh, you know, is it just taunting the patient to bring that up? Um, so that's that is a systems problem. If there are truly valuable things um, that the insurance company is not covering, we should know about that. We should be talking about that. That should be part of our policy discourse, etc. It shouldn't be something that is sort of um, having to be dealt with at the bedside by the individual clinician making these tragic, um, difficult decisions. Um, and so, so it's actually an illustration, by the way, of what we were just talking about, uh, where you can look at this at the individual level and say, bad doctor, why are you lying to you? you know, why are you not telling your patient everything? Um, but that's not going to solve the situation, actually. That's just going to make the doctor feel badly. <laughs> um, but it's not necessarily going to get them to make a different decision next time. And it's certainly not going to get other doctors to make a different decision next time. In order to do that, you really have to look at this from a systems perspective. Dr. Winnie, I've read that you oversee an art gallery, the University of Colorado. Is, is that correct? Can you tell me about, about how that came to be and about the gallery? Yeah, yeah, uh, we do. So my center is the Center for Bioethics and Humanities. Um, and so we do a lot of work on art and medicine, music and medicine. Uh, we have a wonderful music and medicine initiative. Um, we do uh, readings, we do uh, theatrical things. Um, uh, and, and, you know, this comes from the fact that there are aspects of being a doctor or being a nurse or being a pharmacist. We, we, we serve all of the schools on our campus. Um, there, there are features of the work that we do that you really can't learn um, in a textbook, but you can learn them in a play or a novel or by looking at a work of art together. Um, and, and so we, we very explicitly use uh, the arts to help people understand the social context of being a doctor or a nurse uh, or a pharmacist or a dentist, um, the, the sort of communal decision-making that we often have to undertake. Um, we use, uh, we do this art of observation program, which is wonderful where we get different people to look at this, you know, from different training backgrounds to look at the same work of art. And what you'll see is that different things pop out to different people. And it's not that one view is right or wrong. Um, and when they step back from it and then talk together about what did you see, what stood out to you, 
you get a richer understanding of the story that the piece of art is telling to these different uh, individuals. And we use that as a way to approach the, the idea that different people will see patients differently, right? They'll each come away from the patient with something else that stood out to them. And the richer understanding of the patient's story will come when the different caregivers are able to share you know, together what they saw and compare notes. And that's how you get a better decision. So we, so we use it to talk about teams. We use it to talk about uh, disparities. We use it to talk about the difference between um, what you see and how you interpret what you see and stereotypes and things like that end up coming up in some of the art that we look at. So that, that's, how we, that's how we use the art gallery. Um, it's also a public gallery, so, so we invite the public in um, to see the work there. And we've had some you know, incredible shows. We had a Rembrandt exhibit. We had a, an exhibit with, uh, you know, with, with um, really, we get very high quality uh, art. We par partner with the Denver Museum of Art. So we get, uh, we get very, great stuff. Very nice. It seems that medicine is both art and science and so much of training focuses upon the science and not the art so i was um very interested in 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 your approach and to your knowledge is that somewhat unique um i, I don't know that it's as unique as it maybe used to be um there are there are quite a number of um places now that are explicitly incorporating the humanities into certainly medical training the AAMC has a whole initiative around um, the you know how best to incorporate the humanities into uh, what we do. I think uh, the the uh, the irony to some extent um, is that anyone who's actually in medical practice realizes that um, the knowledge piece, the the science piece, is actually the easier of the pieces in terms of of actual practice. Um, learning everything you need to learn feels insurmountable when you get started in medical school, of course. Um, but eventually, uh, this is work and uh, it's a job and you will get good at the knowledge part um, because you'll be practicing that for the rest of your life. So the knowledge piece um, is critical and you do need it from the outset, um, but it also will get continually reinforced. The art piece is where people actually struggle throughout their careers. Um, that is the most challenging part of this is how to maintain empathy, how to maintain humility, how to maintain uh, strong uh, relationships with patients um, and, uh, and yet and not become inured to human suffering. Right? Because we see suffering and then we have to move on to the next patient. So the work that we do uh, is challenging to our humanity sometimes, but it can also be nurturing to our humanity, uh, uh, albeit only if we, if we make an effort to make it so. Um, otherwise, I think the work that we do is actually a challenge um, to the humanism of, of the doctor. Um, and we've seen this you know, repeatedly, the people who get in trouble um, as physicians, um, they're not always in trouble because they had a bad knowledge base. They're typically in trouble because they, their humanity had been eroded. Their empathy had been eroded. Their humility had been eroded. Um, and, and they end up, you know, doing stuff that they very well know they shouldn't do. 
um, if they were to stand back and think about it a little bit, but, but they've gotten into a rote sort of, you know, this is my pattern. Our time is just about up, but it's, it's rare that I have the ability to, to speak with a, a really knowledgeable bioethicist. So I, I'm interested in what you think bioethical issues um, we're going to be uh, focusing on in the years to come, things mm -hmm. that you um, might see uh, coming before the rest of us do. Well, I don't know that I'm seeing things before the rest of us, but um, I will say that we, we do an annual program up in Aspen called the Aspen Ethical Leadership Program, uh, where we bring in uh, C-suite uh, folks, many physicians, but also um, lawyers, you know, for, uh, chief legal officers, and so on. Um, and we and we talk each year about what do we see coming. Um, and this year's program is actually uh, coming up in October. And it will focus on how we use the lessons learned from the pandemic, from this last, you know, terrible year. Um, how do we use lessons about health equity? How do we use lessons about resilience and well-being and burnout? How do we use lessons about the increasing use of technology, the rapidity with which scientific knowledge is being advanced, the use of artificial intelligence, um, things like that? How do we bring those together to create a better health system? Again, uh, you know, this maybe goes back to our systems thinking. And that I think is, is the way of the future right now is moving away from thinking about the ethics of uh, just an individual and an individual and building up individual character, uh, which is important, right? So again, I don't want to be mistaken for saying that's not important. That is very important. And unethical behavior, just like unsafe behavior, just like poor quality care, can be thought of in a systems approach. What, ha what has the system done that creates the person who becomes inured to human suffering, who becomes cold and hard-hearted, who then ends up harming someone, who then, right, that uh, looking at unethical behaviors as a function of a system and not just a function of a bad person. Um, I think that's the direction that we're going to be taking um, in, in the study and, uh, and in the application of bioethics over the next few years. And I think there's an enormous amount that will be learned from the pandemic because we did place doctors and nurses in untenable ethical circumstances. Sometimes there was no choice, uh, but sometimes there were things that we could have done as a system that would have avoided that. Well, Godspeed on that, uh, <laughs> Dr. Winnie. Uh, I, I wish tremendous uh, luck because we certainly need to learn some lessons and, and apply some, some knowledge. Thank you so much for your time today on being on Sound Practice. Yeah, thank you for having me. My thanks to Dr. Matthew Winnie for joining me on Sound Practice. His thoughts on the art and science of medicine should be useful to all physician leaders. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. 
If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Man Robin, Rick Kapow.